yourselves. Here today, welcome. You know, sometimes that just happens. Good morning. Oh man, you guys excited about summer? Are we ready for summer? Kind of excited about summer? Ah, oh, me too, man. This is one of my favorite parts of the year. This is one of my favorite times of the year because of the transition. I, I love the school season and the, the, the regiment that goes with that, the, the consistency. But I also love the summer because there are all kinds of just different things, kind of exciting things that are, that are fresh. But right now is that transition that's kind of in between. And I, I love that. Uh, I love it because obviously there's different things for, for my ministry and our students. But it's even kind of different for me in my pattern, in my studies. The last few weeks, I've gotten really into some Old Testament stuff that I've enjoyed, and that's not normal. I tend to spend most of my time in the New Testament. I don't know why, but I've been in 2 Kings, and I've been kind of kind of digging and, and prodding through all that, kind of leading up to where we are today, just kind of putting some thoughts on paper for where we should go. And if you've spent any time in uh, Old Testament, specifically 2 Kings, there's been some really exciting stuff, really neat stuff. Uh, I've preached this before, but so we, we have Elijah, we go into Elijah, bless you, that, that. And uh, no, no, sometimes it's like God's like, yeah, that's awesome. That's a good one too. Uh, so there was Elijah, there was Elijah, right? So, and there's these amazing things. I've preached about this. There's, there's this, this guy named Naaman that Elijah heals. There's this amazing story. There's this guy, Gehazi, and he actually curses and all that. And so I'm leading up and I'm thinking about all these things that I could preach about today. And I found this bizarre passage of scripture that's after all that. And I've read this before. I've even kind of sort of used it a little bit. A long time ago. But I looked at this passage of scripture, and this is one of those things that you kind of think about it, or you just kind of look at it, and you just kind of gloss over it. It's, it's neat, but, but then years later, you look at it again, and you go, wow, this is actually kind of exciting. You ever do that? You ever do that in your life where there's this moment, there's this something that's going on, and it may or may not mean anything to you, and then years later, you look back on it, and you go, it has a totally different meaning, totally different idea behind it. There's been a lot of that um, this week. I lost a dear friend of the family this week. My mother's very best friend, her name was Phyllis Lively. She was my third grade teacher. One of my favorite people in the world passed away uh, this week. It was, it was a big deal in my house. Again, my, my mother's very best friend. She and my mother talked together in the late 70s, all through the, the early 80s at Osborne Elementary over in Chickamauga. And going to that funeral, going in and sitting down in front of my mom both early before the funeral, we're talking about all these things and looking backwards on, on that time. And my mom was like, you know, do you remember much about third grade? Of course I remember a lot about third grade. Miss Mobley was one of those vibrant teachers. You know, she was larger than life, and she was exciting, and she did things kind of differently. And I was like, yeah, Mom, remember? We did this, and that was fun. We did this, and that was fun, blah, blah, blah. She gave me two paddlings, and we did this. And my mom was like, what? <laughs> Oops. And I was like, thank you, Miss Laughlin, for taking that to your grave. What a friend. <laughs> so... Mom was like, tell me about that. I was like, no, I'm not telling you anything. So I'm going to tell y'all. So, uh, shh, don't tell her. So I started thinking about this, and I'm in the funeral home. I mean, the place is kind of back around the funeral home. And I burst out laughing, thinking about this event. Because, again, when you think about things that happened a long time ago, but with through today's lenses, things are kind of different. I had a lot of great friends. They're great. One of my friends are, listen, everybody just perked up. Like, everybody turned into prairie dogs. Like, hey, what's he going to talk about? I know. So, welcome to the youth pastor preaching today. So, 
uh, I had all these great friends. Well, one of my friends, her name was Amy, and Amy was awesome. She was like a, like, like a tomboy. She was like rough and tumble, wore overalls and played the mud. You know, like, she was like a great friend. However, she did have these metal braces that were on her legs. That like she, she had some problems walking, walk, but she ran all the time. She ran around all the time. And one day, we were in class, in the classroom, and Amy comes running through the classroom and running down the aisle. I don't know why I did this. I just stuck out my leg and tripped her. It seemed like a great idea. So, wham, wham, braces are flying. She's crying. Everything's going on. I look up, and Miss Lively's right in my face. I'm like, uh-oh. And Miss Lively's like, do you want me to paddle you now, or do you want me to go get your mom? I didn't say a word. I just went out the hall and assumed the position. Because <laughs> let me tell you, that's not when we want Donna to make an appearance. And I'm laughing because nine-year-old Billy and 47-year-old Billy had very different thoughts on what that was all about. Nine-year-old Billy's like, man, she's my buddy. This will be great. Kevin and Spencer will love it. 47-year-old Billy's like, dude, man, that could have been a lawsuit. <laughs> You could have got transferred to the, to the, the, the special school for kids that are in trouble all the time. <laughs> Things are different now. But we look back on these passages of Scripture or whatever in our life, and we get totally different things out of it. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. I want to do something a little different today. I'm going to ask everybody to stand with me, if you would, for a reading of God's Word. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to this. The company of the prophets said to Elijah, Look, the place where we meet with, with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place for us to live. And he said, Go. Then one of them said, Won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elijah replied. And he went with them and they went to the Jordan and began to cut down trees. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out. It was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elijah cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, Lord, I love you. I praise you for this time together. Lord, I pray that we pause and we just take me completely out of the situation and we just look at you and your word and these practical thoughts so that we can take them out of them, out of this place and grow closer to you and each other. In Christ Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So we're looking at 2 Kings chapter 6. And again, this isn't like the deepest theological concept. But when I found this in and I started digging into it, then there are some practical, beautiful things that I think we can all learn from it. 2 Kings chapter 6, first thing, God provides opportunities. Everywhere we look, the first thing, God provides opportunities. Look at what it says in verse 1. Look, the place where we meet with you is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan where each of us can get a pole and let us build a place for us to live. And he said, go. Then one of the servants said, won't you please come with your servants? I will, Elijah replied. And he went with them and they went to the Jordan and began to cut down Trees. Now, as a youth pastor, I find this passage of Scripture absolutely fascinating. Because when you look at it for the first time, you probably gloss over this beginning, and you don't see that this isn't Elijah. This isn't the prophet who's saying, hey, guys, 
we're outgrowing this place. We got to go do something different. Come on, let's go and let's do something different. No, this is not what happens at all. I don't know exactly what's going on here. Scripture is kind of silent to the, to the world that Elijah lives in. But looking at other prophets and looking at the history, there would have been, for lack of a better word, apprentices. People that came to live with Elijah or people that came to work around Elijah. I don't know if it was like a foster kind of care kind of thing or an adoption kind of thing. Or maybe there were wealthy people who sent their children to learn from a theological master. But for whatever reason, there are all these students, for lack of a better term, and it's the students who say, hey, Elijah, things aren't going quite right here. We're outgrowing this place. Let's go do something. And when we look at the scripture, and he, it's Elijah, who says, go, go. Man, that is my favorite word in scripture. Anytime we see the go, and that's me, that's me and my wife. I want to go. I want to do exciting things. Uh, we spent four, four weeks at the end of our, our semester in our student ministry kind of focusing on the same thing, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in that so much. We, we spent four weeks kind of digging into different aspects of it. But here, it's where the students take ownership. And why is that such a big deal? Look at our church. Look at any kind of ministry. In the ministry world, we get calls all the time. I get calls literally once, twice, three, four times a week. And I appreciate them. I, I really do. But it's, hey, Billy, you need to start a such and such ministry. It'll be great. Or Billy, hey, our church should start a this, that, and the other concept. It'll be wonderful. And that's true. It, it's always true. But here's the difference. When it's the people in the church that come to the staff and says, hey, listen, I want to start something, that's when, that's when it really takes off. When someone invests their time, their energy, their worries into the ministry, and they go, that's when things take off. So I would think, for Elijah's sake, this is pretty exciting. Not only are his students saying, hey, we got to, I mean, I guess at first maybe it comes off a little grumpy. Hey, man, we got these problems, and maybe it's kind of complaining, but no, no, no. They want to take ownership of this situation, and I would think he would be, like, super excited about that. In our life, where in the world do we see these opportunities? They're everywhere. God provides us plenty of opportunities, and not only does he provide the opportunities, the second thing, God cares about our situations. Second thing, God cares about our situation. Now, this is where it gets kind of crazy. Ready? Second Kings 6, look at verse 5. As one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into water. Oh, my Lord, he cried out, it was borrowed. The man of God asked, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, Elijah cut a stick and threw it there and made the iron float. That's kind of hilarious to me because, again, remember, it's Elijah and probably a bunch of students. And when you read the pastor passage, excuse me, as one of them was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water. No, it didn't. What in the world were they doing? They weren't just chopping down trees, chopping down trees. Oops, it fell into the deep part of the water. I don't know what was going in here, but I guess Ashad and Mishabibi were messing around and something happened and the, the axe went into the water. And now they've got a problem. Doesn't that happen to us all the time? Happens to us all the time. Dude, I read the church bus into the gym. <laughs> I didn't mean to. I didn't wake up that morning and say, you know, we just bought this $35,000 church bus. I think I ran it into the gym today. No, that was not the plan. We got these new buses. 
I was like, new bus, better keep it clean. I don't wash it anymore, and now you know why. So I got the bus, and I put it up on the hill. It was made where you could just wash it out. And, I, and we didn't have the new building then, so I moved it around beside the gym. There's like an angle. I've got it. it was good. So I, I finished it up. I was going to park it. went around. There's this overhang by the gym. It used to be. I guess it's still there. And, man, I drove too close to that over, overhang. It ripped open the new bus like a can of tuna. I mean, it was just like... It was like 10 feet long and about 2 feet of sky looking through the top of the brand new bus. And I'm sitting there like, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. And I don't know if y'all remember him. About that time, Junior Holcomb pulled in. Here he comes, Junior Holcomb. And I'm literally going, how can I blame this on Junior Holcomb? I'm pretty sure they'll believe me. So he comes. I'm like, Junior, look at what I just did. And he was just like, yeah, accidents happen. Goes, I said, no, dude. Accidents, I just wrecked the church bus. It's brand new. We all have that kind of insanity. But these guys, I don't know what they're doing. They're messing around doing the thing. Suddenly the axe head is in the water. And we kind of make light of this, but this is a big deal. When we look at this in scripture, look at this time period, the geographical situation. Listen, iron axe heads don't grow on trees. Iron has to be imported. How they made this thing. And at this time, very few people had an iron accent. This is a year or more salary. So I start thinking, you know, how can I make you understand this is a big deal? It, 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 it's sort of like if a middle school kid loses their iPhone. It's that big of a deal. No, it's really not. It's way bigger than that. So you're thinking, well, it's like your car falling into. No, no, no. A lot of people in here, lots and lots of people in here have a car. Very few people would have an accident. This would be like a, a, a tool like a tractor. Like all of us know a person that has a tractor, but very few people actually have a tractor. But when we look into the grammar here, the Hebrew here, it's not like somebody with a tractor is like, yo, use my tractor. No, no, no. It was borrowed. In fact, whoever this was probably begged to borrow this. When you look at how desperate this is in the original Hebrew, this is a huge problem. And can you imagine me, because I'm the guy that would do that, can you imagine me going up to Bernard Sims' house and being like, Hey, Bernard, remember when you let me borrow that tractor? It's in the lake. That would be a problem. I wouldn't even tell him. I would just leave. I'd just be gone. People would be like, where did Billy go? I don't know. I saw him on Bernard's tractor the other day at Big Smile on his face. This is a huge deal. And this is so God. Because remember, God cares about our situations. C.S. Lewis says the most interesting thing. Listen to this. Though our feelings come and go, God's love does not. Isn't that us? Our feelings come and go. Our feelings change constantly all the time. We all wake up in different kind of moods all the time. You know, some days I'm like, yay, you've got it. Some days I'm like, yay, you've got it. It changes, right? But not for God. Everything's the same. And that's true for all of us. I love what Paul says in Ephesians. Listen to this. Ephesians 4. Don't turn there. Just listen. Ephesians 4, verse 11. He is the one who gave these gifts to the church. It's us. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip, equip God's people and to do the work and build up his church the body of Christ. We've all got opportunities. We all have situations. But listen to this word. It is our responsibility. Responsibility to equip God's people to do his work. 
and build up the church, the body of Jesus. It is my responsibility to equip all of us in such a way that we go do the body of Christ, the work of Christ. Because remember, we've all got opportunities. All of us have opportunities. And all of us have opportunities that have situations or problems or whatever that gets in the way of that. But the third thing, God requires action. God requires action. 2 Kings 6, 7. Listen to this. This is simple. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Pretty simple. Lift it out, he said. Then the man reached out his hand and he took it. Listen, ultimately, we have to reach out our hand. Regardless of our opportunities, regardless of the situations, regardless of what we're required or not to do, required or not required to do, we have to reach out our hand. And we have to do something with it. I'm not going to do this in here today, but I'll tell you about it. I do this in seminars a lot. Um, it's an exercise that's foolproof, and it's hilarious. I wish we could have done it, but it takes a long time. You get three or four volunteers, you send them out of the room, right? Simple concept. Three or four volunteers, you send them out of the room. You bring them in one at a time. So you bring them in one at a time, and you say to them, can you give me directions to the closest restroom? And without fail, every single time, people will point towards the restroom. They'll do it. It's just this natural. They can't make themselves not do it. They point. And the crowd laughs. Ha, ha, ha. And they go sit down. You can bring in a second person, a third person, a fourth person. It doesn't matter. All of you will do it. Except for now that I've told you. So next party trick, whatever. This, this would be great fun. Bring them in and say, hey, show me to the closest restroom. People will automatically point to the restroom. But the problem with Christianity, the problem with a lot of us believers, is that while God requires action, we often think that action is pointing to the solution. Action isn't pointing to the solution. Action is reaching out your hand and helping the solution to happen. To walking hand in hand, growing closer to Jesus and each other together. And we do, man. We love to write the checks, and writing the checks is important. We love to give the instructions or, or make the phone call and say, we need to have a. But we don't. I can prove it. I've used this illustration before. Look at the pew in front of me. If you've got a pew in front of me. Look at the pew in front of you. You notice anything peculiar about the varnish on the top of the pews? You notice anything about it? It is worn. It is worn. You know why? Because we love to hold on to the pews, don't we? We love to hold on to the pews. And then we look at our life, we look at our situation, we look at whatever's going on in the world, and we don't realize that maybe we had the opportunity, and yeah, maybe there was some sort of problem that came in the way, but the action wasn't able to happen because we were too busy holding on to the pews. And until we learn to reach down with our hand, help people, ourselves, whatever, out of the situation, nothing is going to change. So we have to ask ourselves several questions. The first one, I love this. What opportunities has God given us? What opportunities has God given you? What opportunities ha has God given me? Now, probably a third of you have you in the room or, or right now going, yeah, I haven't given me any opportunities. Yes, he can. I'll prove it. You ready? You ready? This is crazy science. Everybody take a deep breath in. Exhale. Let's do it again. It'll be crazy. Take a deep breath in. Exhale. Dude, you got air in your lungs. You've got all the opportunities in the world. I know you're thinking, now I have an opportunity. You've got breath in your lungs. You've got an opportunity to do something. You've got a voice. You've got an ear. You've got an eye. Whatever you've got, God has given you an opportunity to do something. 
Right now in my world, I'm engrossed in summer and all the beautiful ministry that kind of goes along with that. In my world, summer is a great opportunity to get involved with the student, get to know them a little differently than, than, than you can during the school season because you don't have, you don't have quite the time. There's this concept, it's been around for decades, but just recently I've kind of spent a little more quality time kind of digging into it. It's called the 414 window. I'm not going to bore you with the science that goes along with that, but it's really simple. The average person comes to faith between the years of 4 and 14. You get it, the 414 window. So as a pastor who is digging into that age range, plus or minus a few years, I really want to learn more of that. This is fascinating. 85% of Baptists accept Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. That's pretty simple. And, and it's, it's math. We can argue that it's 4 or 2 young. I, we'll say that for another day. But here's the reality. 85% of Baptists accept Christ between the ages of 4 and 14. And that's neat. But this new Barna study that's really kind of captured my attention is about the, the ramifications or what happens after that, specifically with adults. 61% of adult women who accept Christ do so through their children's exposure Faith. And when I say children, I don't just mean the little kids, uh, babies through teenagers. They're children. You understand why? 61% of adult women who accept Christ, so they've, they've gone through life with no faith life, and then as an adult, they come to Christ. 61% of the time, as a result of some sort of ministry involving their children. Oh, but wait, there's more. 75% of adult men who accept Christ do so their children's exposure to faith. I've seen that in this place. I've seen it over and over and over and over. Uh, little Johnny brings a friend to church. Little Johnny's friend grows in his faith closer and closer to, to God. As a result, he goes home and he tells his parents, mom and dad, he said, I've seen that over and over. I've been blessed, I don't know, I wish I knew how many times, four, five, six times to baptize entire families. And every single time it started with the child who came to faith, who came to church, who came to something. And when I look at the opportunities that have been given me and us, man, there are plenty of them. Thousands and thousands and thousands of them with just, uh, just a few miles from here. They're not just my opportunities. They're our opportunities. You look at your world. You look at the thing that's interesting to you. I guarantee you there's an opportunity. Second thing, do we rely on God? In our situations. Do we rely on God in our situations? Johnny sent me a text yesterday. It was a, of her car dashboard. And she's got this, this car that has this fancy little warning. Fancy little warning's about this big. And it says, literally, she sent me a picture. It says, you have one mile until empty. So you better rely on God or something. I don't know. You have one mile... And, and I got a little irritated because she was in our driveway. She didn't get out of her car and into my car. She didn't get out of her car and get to Reagan's car. She didn't get out of her car and get into Bailey's car. No, she just said, come on, God, here we go. It worked out for her. I, I just wonder what happened if she called me and said, hey, listen, man, it didn't work out. I'm going to need to come get me. And I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to softball. Um, I'll be there in a little while. No. Do we rely on God? You know, this is a hard one. I would imagine these guys in this situation, they're cutting down the trees, they're, they're putting up poles, they're going to town. Uh, they're with Elisha. They've probably seen Elisha do different miracles, or at least they've heard about miracles that Elisha does. 
has done. So for them, they have realized very quickly they are a part of the greater story that God loves them, that he's com completely consistent, that you can rely on him. And, and I wish we had an Elijah here, but but, but, but we do. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and tell your testimony, even though I think that would be a good idea someday. Because my gut tells me that there's a large portion of people in the room. I, I'm one of them. I'm one of them. Where I feel, I feel, and, and it's not just it's not just me being preacher guy. Where I'm saying, man, I, I really believe I've seen God do amazing things. I, I really believe I've, I've seen God at work, dude. I'm, I believe that. And if I didn't, I, I wouldn't be here. But it's not just me because I've heard your stories. I've heard stories from people all over our church talk about God doing amazing, amazing, amazing things in their lives. And that there's no logical reason, that there's nothing logical that says anything other than God did something amazing in their life. And then we do it, I do it. We have a situation and we may or may not rely on God the way, the way he needs us to. Faith is confidence of what we hope for and the assurance of what we don't see. And I, I get it that that's hard. But we can listen to a lot of people who have seen it, who have heard it in a mighty way. Third thing, are we reaching out our hand? Are we reaching out our hand or are we holding on to the pew? Because the thing is, we can talk a big game all day long. But unless we're actually taking a situation, taking an opportunity by the hand and doing something with it, then nothing good comes of it. In my world, I'm seeing the most fascinating thing happen in my ministry world. You may not understand this, but uh, it's a pretty crazy concept. There was this, this woman, her name was Margaret Mead. She was born in the very early 1900s, uh, 1901. She died in 1978. And in the late 50s, all through the 60s, early 70s, she was an expert on culture, just, just what the world's thinking, why the, the world is thinking, and, and what's going to happen next. She was not a theologian by any stretch of their imagination. But the thing she was talking about, especially in the late 50s and early 60s, is absolutely fascinating. And she would go around and do these lectures, and she would talk about a comparison of three different societies, a post-figurative society, a co-figurative society, and a pre-figurative society. And I realized I probably just lost it, but, but be patient. This is interesting. And she starts talking about, in her generation, remember the people that grew up in the early 1900s, for the most part, they lived in this post-figurative society where their parents told them exactly how the world was going to be, exactly what their life was going to be. Does that make sense? Their parents told them, you're going to marry this person, and you're going to have this kind of job, and you're going to live here, and you're going to have grandbabies, and this is the way the world's going to work. And as a, as a general rule for, I don't know, thousands of years prior to that, that literally the way it worked. But, but in the 50s and 60s, the world started changing, and we started having a co-figurative society where for the first time, the adolescents, and remember, teenagers aren't some, some ancient thing. This is a fairly modern concept. For thousands of years, there were adults and there were children. And then Europeans started getting rich and started having that middle in-between thing, and Americans loved that. So we had teenagers, right? So she starts noticing a co-figurative society where the young, younger adults and their parents are working together to find out what direction the child would go in, what kind of life there would be. And she had this theory that everybody laughed at her, this concept of a pre-figurative society where she would say, listen to this, there's going to be a day when students won't need their parents at all. 
the world would become so small. And she's talking about like newspapers and the radio, right? She had no idea what was coming. She's like, there's going to be a day where kids are just going to be able to figure it out for themselves. And they're going to decide. And so as a youth pastor for, I don't know, we've been doing this a long time now, you kind of start seeing these things, these concepts, and putting them into play. And I remember 20 years ago going, you know what? I think that's going to happen. We need to get a handle on that. And now I'm like, dude, we're there. I have students left and right. They need their parents for food and shelter. And everything out of that, after that, is irrelevant. Because they are so dug into what the world has given them that they're making all the decisions completely and totally on their own. And then I look at this little passage of scripture where, where these guys are cutting axe and this amazing thing happens, the axe head floats, and we think, you know what? The truth is, we've got opportunities coming that we can't fathom. We've got situations that are going to get in the middle of those opportunities that God's going to care about that we can't fathom. And it's going to require action like we have never seen before. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We can either get mad or we can get busy. Because regardless... God's got big things for us. As I think about my third grade teacher, Ms. Lively, I'm telling you, the last few days, I, I have thought, of, thought about her nonstop. There are reasons that she is so vibrant in my mind. I liked some of, most of my other teachers just fine, but I don't have memories of them like I do her because of the way she interjected what I now see, now looking back, it was just as much or more ministry than it was education. She did the most fascinating things. She wanted all of us in her classroom to know individually that each of us mattered in such a way and that she loved us. We had music time at the beginning of class every single day. And after a few weeks or months, I, I don't really remember, she figured out with dozens and dozens of songs that each one of us in, in the classroom had a favorite song. And it's the first half of the year, she'd be like, all right, Billy, what's your favorite song? We'll sing your favorite song. And we'd do that. But after that half of the year, she, she knew what our favorite song is. She'd be like, all right, class, today, we're going to sing Billy's song. Billy's favorite song. Oh, where have you been, Billy boy, Billy boy? Oh, where have I love that song. Or I'd be like, today, we're going to be Michael's favorite song. And we'd all know, Michael rode the boat ashore. She just knew because everything was individual. Everything was specific. She partnered with us in our education. She did this neat thing where she looked at a map. This was before computers. They used to have this in school. And she would scour the countryside, and she would find a town that had their name of the town matched our name. There's a town in Texas called Crystal, Texas. How cool is that? And she would have everybody in their name, and we wrote a letter, dear mayor, whatever, and we sent it to the town, and they would send us stuff. She wanted us to feel individual. She wanted us to feel special. And looking back on that, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize what she was doing. Last time I saw Miss Lovely, she was with Apple, she was at Applebee's. She was always at Applebee's. And I saw her at Applebee's. And I don't want to imply that she wasn't a touchy, feely, huggy person. That's not who she was. Um, she was actually stretchy, stern. And I saw her. And uh, she comes over. She's like, Billy. And she hugs me. 
big bear hug, which is kind of weird. Um, she said, tell me about your ministry. I was like, yeah, no, we're doing pretty good. She said, no, 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 no. Tell me about your ministry. She pulled me over to a table. We sit down. We start pouring into what we're doing. I'm like, hey, we're, we're doing this thing. It's going to be great. In the summer, I'm having a such and such. We're doing such and such. And, and, and we've got all these high school boys that are like coming to Christ and, and doing some great things. And they're pouring in. And, uh, and, and all the what was nice. She enjoyed the what, but that was never good enough. She wanted to know why. Why, why are you doing that? Why is this happening? How? How are you doing these things? Because the, the, the simple what we're doing wasn't good. She wanted to dig deeper, dig deeper, dig deeper, and know. And the nine-year-old me, all I knew is that she was just a fun teacher. She was a neat lady that, that liked me, and she was my mom's best friend. 47-year-old Billy looks way back at that decades ago. And she was helping build a foundation that pointed me into a direction that looked for opportunities, that found ways to overcome the obstacles, and then she taught me that, that, that there was action that would have to be required. That's no different for me than, than it is for all of us. What does your story look like? Where did it come from? What are the opportunities that are now there as a result? You get to go home and decide that. And then you got to ask yourself, what are you going to do? 